I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class. I've never even put anything in a quilt show. But I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey everybody, this is Sandy, and it's two days later, and guess what? I'm still a quilter. This is part two of episode 28, and I'm recording it two days after part one. Haven't had a whole lot of time to pull my thoughts together, so we're going to try to do this off the top of our heads and hope it turns out okay. So in this episode, I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a walkthrough um, in terms of the lectures and special events that I attended at Houston. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about what each person said, but I'm not going to give away the whole uh, kettle of fish, ball of wax, whatever it would be that I'd be giving away, because, you know, these folks do these lectures all over the place, and I don't want to just redo their lecture, um, because actually I would not be able to do it as well as them anyway. So I'm just going to give you an overview so that maybe if you hear something you're interested in, you'll follow up later. And I will put all sorts of links and stuff on the show notes to the episode, um, Eventually, if I don't get it tonight, I will make sure I get them up there um, at some point. So, um, and then I'll do a little bit of less listener comments at the end because, as I said in the um, first part of these two episodes, I'm divvying up all the comments that I got over the last week or so uh, between these two episodes. So, I have a few to share with you today. But first, the walkthrough of my experience in Houston. The first thing we did was we got in Wednesday afternoon. Actually, we got in Wednesday morning, um, around lunchtime, I think it was, uh, you know, time zone issues and being on Dramamine, that whole day, a little bit fuzzy for me, uh, but we got into our hotel, got settled in, and then we headed over to uh, the conference center, convention hall, convention center, I guess I should settle on what I'm calling it, it is a convention center, and we got over there uh, Friday, I'm sorry, Wednesday afternoon, I believe at uh, five o'clock was the VIP preview of the show, and all of us VIPs were able to go in before the common rabble, <laughs> I guess, on Wednesday night. Um, the VIPs, that's just if you're a member of IQA, the International Quilters Association or Quilt Association, uh, which I wasn't at the time. I did join membership later. Um, but not at that time. The other way you get to be a VIP is if you've registered for any of the classes or lectures or that kind of thing. So since we had all done that, my whole group of folks that I went down with, we all went over uh, for that early um, preview. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, I had done that the year before, the time I'd gone down there before with my mom. It is helpful actually to go into the preview. So if any of you go to Houston in the future and you've not done that before, I would suggest it because even though there's still a lot of people there, there's a lot fewer than what then came in at seven o'clock. And all of the folks who won awards are there with their quilts. And so they will, you know, talk to you a little bit about their process and that sort of thing. So it was very interesting. Um, unfortunately, because of the aforementioned Dramamine and the fact that I hadn't slept real well the two nights before, I was really flipping exhausted Wednesday night. And so we didn't actually stay all that long in the preview. Um, I knew a couple of quilts that I really wanted to see or a couple of quilt exhibits, I guess. And so um, my friend Kate and I sort of expedited what we were going to do that evening. I believe the vendors actually opened that night too, but I didn't go to the vendors. Uh, one of the women from our group did scout out the vendors the first night 
during that preview time because, as she said, there were it was going to be a lot less crowded then than in the future. Um, and that's true. But to tell the truth, I personally am not a huge shopper, although I do like going to the vendor section at quilt shows. I think I already mentioned that in the last episode. Um, you see a lot of different kinds of things there and you get introduced to a lot of different kinds of things. So I do like seeing the vendors, but I was okay with waiting. I just really, really wanted to see the quilts. So we went in that first night and I think spent about an hour and a half or so um, during the preview time and sort of scoping out uh, what exhibits were there and and what we most wanted to spend time in later. And nicely, the program book has a map of the whole um, show floor out there with the different exhibits marked. And I was brilliant enough in my drama mean fog (laughs) the first night to actually kind of mark down which parts I had seen. And then I kept that up through the the week so that I could make sure that I had... um, gotten to all of the exhibits by the end of the week rather than trying to retrace my path. So that was a a brief moment of brilliance um, in my life. They don't happen often, but periodically they do. So the first evening really set the tone for the rest of the week. I I love seeing the quilts. That's obviously my favorite thing um, going to Houston. And so it was nice having that um, right off the bat, that hour and a half time. And, And I did find through the weekend, and my friend Kate and I talked about this, the the reality is you can only handle seeing so many of the quilts at once anyway because you just start getting sort of sensory overload and your brain starts shutting down, um, at least mine did. <laughs> and, and I found that really about an hour and a half was my maximum. By, by the end of that hour and a half, I stopped seeing details. Um, I suddenly, I, I could tell it was coming on because it was like, oh, I don't want to take another picture. And then as soon as I realized I didn't want to capture something in a photo, then that probably meant I'd had enough for that period and I had to move on. And so I tended to break up my quilt show viewing into hour and a half chunks through the rest of the weekend. Um, So that was Wednesday night. That was pretty much all we did, except having dinner and going to bed and letting my drama mean finally take over. (laughs) Um, The next day, Thursday, I went to a luncheon um, with Kaif Fassett. And that sounds like I had lunch with Kaif, which in a way I did myself and 1,000 other of our closest friends. It was a huge lunch and it took up the entire ballroom. And as my friend and I were, um, I was there with, not with Kate, but with another woman that was with our group, Joan. And Joan and I did a quick head count um, based on the number of people at the tables. And we sort of estimated how many tables there were. And it It was pretty close to 1,000 people in that room, I think. But even so, we had gotten... Uh, pretty decent seats. We weren't towards the front, but we were at a good angle to see the slideshow. And and actually, I was, um, I think, maybe three tables away from Kay Fassett, so I was able to see his head <laughs> during lunch. Um, I specifically went to that luncheon because, to be very honest, and I know there are some of you that this is going to make you gasp, but I haven't really been a huge Kay Fassett fan before this. It's not that I hate his fabric or his uh, work. It's not that I even have particularly strong dislike. It's just one of these things that, you know, sometimes I'll look at them and think, well, it's kind of nice, but mostly it's his fabric is a little bit too busy. I think it is for me. I tend to like a little bit cleaner lines. Um, You know, when I look at the modern contemporary sort of styles of fabrics out there, I tend to drift more towards the Amy Butler style, which is kind of larger and a lot more open space in it. Um, than the K Facet style, which has got a lot more going on. But that's not to say that I don't see some use for K Facet fabrics, and I'm not saying that I would never buy one. I'm sure that at some point I will. Uh, it's just he hasn't been a huge um, 
factor in my quilt making up till now. And so I decided I would go to the luncheon to see if there was something I was missing, if maybe I could learn more about this and, and find some aspect of the Cape Facet um, uh, creative world, <laughs> I guess I would say, that I might be able to um, really enjoy. And I will say I thoroughly enjoyed his lecture. He was an excellent speaker. He was very personable, had a great dry sense of humor that was just right in my wheelhouse. Um, and, you know, for example, one of the things he said was um, when he started out going to art school, but dropped out after a very short period of time. And, and the quote, I actually wrote it down because it, it just tickled me so much. He says, they brought out the color wheel and I knew that was the work of the devil. I mean, get thee behind me, color wheel. <laughs> I just that, that just cracked me up. Um, in any case, uh, with a nod to Francis of the Off-Kilter Quilt, who I know is a K. Facet fan, uh, he had a lot of pictures of knits and knitting uh, projects that he had done because that's how we started out. He started out in the knitting world and um, saw the light. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't avoid it. And came to uh, into the world of quilting. He is still doing knitting stuff as well. And I, I did like a lot of his knitted works. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm taking up knitting. But anyway, his lecture was entitled Simple Shapes, and it was based on the book that he's got out now. Uh, let me look it up quick. I actually have the window open on my computer. It's Simple Shapes Spectacular Quilts, 23 Original Quilt Designs. And quite a few of those um, quilts from that book were part of his lecture, but not all. And he had a lot of other things in there as well. And it was basically about using repetitions of squares and triangles and rectangles and circles uh, in your quilts. And mostly what I really got out of it was... I just absolutely loved his photography. He had um, He would show an image of a nature scene or a, you know, urban setting or something like that and point out, okay, you know, look at the rectangles in this and that could translate into this quilt. And so he would show you the, the photo first and, and then the quilt. And I was just digging the photography um, more so than the quilts. You know, like I said, I, I don't know that I walked out of there with any different impression about um, Kate Facet's fabrics or quilt patterns so much as I did. I thoroughly enjoyed his photography and I was really kind of noting that I'm, my other, um, and I will call this a hobby, I don't call my quilting a hobby, but my um, photography is definitely a hobby. I enjoy doing photography here and there. So I was picking up some tips about that from his lecture. So I guess my summary of that is that if you ever have an opportunity to hear Kay Facet speak, definitely do so. He was thoroughly enjoyable, really knew his stuff. His um, lecture was really well organized while still feeling sort of free-flowing. You know, it was um, you, you felt like he was just having a casual conversation with you. Um, I don't know that I ever saw him refer to notes at all. He may have had them up there. I wasn't really at the right angle to be watching him as much as I was watching the the, the uh, presentation, the photos. Um, some of his quilts I do like, so I think it's more that it's his fabrics themselves that I'm not as jazzed by. Um, but again, I could see where they'd be very useful. So I may end up buying them someday. I'm not saying I'm against Cave Facet. It's just not my favorite. So that's my review of Cave. The next lecture I went to, actually the same afternoon, was with Hollis Shadlin. And her lecture was, hang on, I'm double checking the title because I didn't always write that down in my notes. Uh, her lecture was The Relationship Between Drawing and Quilting. And so um, she used... Uh, images, again, primarily of her quilts, but I think she also had just some general photography in there. And she talked about um, techniques of drawing 
and how they can come into your quilt life. And I found that really interesting. Um, I have not taken, you know, since high school, I've not really taken any art classes. In college, my art requirement was an art history class. Um, So I haven't really done any training in art particularly. I've done some reading up in it. So most of the concepts that she used were pretty familiar to me, but it was interesting seeing them played out in her quilts. And as I've said before, I'm a huge Hollis Shadlin fan. I love her her uh, figurative quilts, I guess I'll say, the, the ones that she has done more recently with um, portraiture on, on quilts. And so just being able to sit there and look at the pictures of her quilts was fantastic. But she talked about the four elements of draw- drawing being line, negative space, perspective, and light and shadow. And then at the very end, she also talked about icons and symbolism a little bit. But she said about line um, that, you know, line and quilting, you kind of are drawing your eye in certain patterns. And, you know, there's directional lines. Um, she did make the point that horizontal lines tend to be more calming, whereas vertical lines tend to tend to uh, give more of a tense, uh, bring up tension. Um, and I hadn't really looked at that before, but it was quite clear as soon as she put up the, the photos of different quilts, some with horizontal lines and some with vertical, you could feel the emotional difference in your response to them. Um, and that obviously putting lines together can create shapes. And when she first said that, I thought, well, yeah. But then um, as she showed the the photo of what she was talking about, I could see what she was saying. Is she wasn't talking about just straight shapes. She was talking about how you can have lines coming through the quilt at different angles and different directions. And then the secondary patterns that emerge are actually shapes. And that was pretty cool. Uh, cool. Um, in terms of negative space, she talked about the difference between light and dark areas and that it keeps your eyes engaged and it helps creating a focal point. Um, and, you know, it is true that usually when I'm putting together a quilt, I'm not thinking about focal points so much. I'm thinking about overall patterns. So that's something I'm going to need to look at a little bit more. Um, I think it's probably certainly more so true in, in art type quilts than it is more traditional type quilts, but you still have focal points in quilts, whether it be that medallion right in the middle of the quilt or whether it be applique that's sort of traveling through the quilt and kind of helping to frame things you do have to address the issue of focal points. And that was something, again, that I don't normally think about. So this lecture really helped me um, focus more on trying to pay more attention to that in the future. Um, Perspective, you know, she just gave examples of how perspective can come out in quilts, that you have a feeling that there's a background and a foreground. And she used examples not only from art quilts, but also from traditional quilts and the use of value, um, and contrast and and how that can also help in perspective. And, um, you know, one of the photos was an op art quilt, an optical illusion type quilt, where it was all very sort of traditional blocks, but the way it came together, it looked 3D. It was really pretty cool. Um, But again, in, in perspective, then you look at how you're using line and how you're using size of blocks, you know, size diminishes, it feels like it's receding into the background, that kind of thing. So that was a really interesting um, concept to ponder a bit. And then she talked about light and shadow. And and again, she talked about value here, more so than color. Um, And in order to understand light and shadow, she said, you do have to understand value. And and that is something that I think all quilters do need to work on, is really understanding value. We tend to focus more on color. And, 
you can make the same quilt out of 15 different colors. And if you don't pay attention to value, that quilt may not work. So you really do have to pay more attention to value. Um, and if you're interested, you can listen to my episode on that way, way back at the very beginning. I don't remember what number it is, but it's, I think, under 10. So I did do an episode on value. Not that I'm any expert. I am still definitely learning about that. Uh, in that section of Light and Shadow, she did talk also about how um, light and shadow moves your eyes through a quilt, helps create interest. And um, obviously, if you're doing a more uh, realistic, like a pictorial quilt, then you have to pay attention to shadow to make it look more real. If you've got shadows coming off in the str- in wrong places, it's going to not look realistic. And so if you're shooting for realistic, you really do have to pay attention to literal sh- shadows. Um, and that also you can use thread, obviously, to add highlights and shadows as well. Um, And she did, like I said, she talked about imagery as symbolism. I didn't take as many notes here because most of it was just sort of looking at the imagery and symbolism that she has done in her own quilts, which I always love, but it wasn't anything I wrote down. I was just focused purely on looking at that point. So sorry, I can't really share anything with you from there. Um, The next lecture, hang on, I'm going to pause while I flip through my notes to the next section. Okay, found it. Several pages later. Sorry, I didn't want to make you listen to all those pages flipping. Okay, the next lecture I attended was the next day, Friday, and I went to an afternoon lecture with Marty Michelle on machine quilting in sections, low carb or low fat. And uh, basically, it's about how to break your quilt down into sections to quilt it, and then you kind of piece it back together afterwards. And it's sort of like um, we've We've heard uh, Frances and her podcast has talked about Jay, one of our mutual listeners who um, mentioned chunking when you're piecing a quilt, that rather than piecing in rows, sometimes it's helpful to piece in chunks. Well, this is taking that same idea um, further and saying sometimes it's easier to quilt your machine in chunks. And this is a little bit different from uh, quilt as you go. She said she used to call it quilt as you sew, and now she's calling it quilt as you piece. Um And what she is suggesting, and I did actually buy the book on it. I'm not entirely sure I would do this. I haven't decided. But when you have to think ahead and you think about the parts of your quilt that kind of make sense to stick together as a chunk, and then you actually quilt that part of it, whether or not you're quilting as you seem, but you could actually do all the quilting designs, etc., on that chunk, and then you do all the chunks. And then when you put them together, um, you use... um, Uh, I don't remember what she called them, but there's strips that you would, finishing strips. So you would quilt these two sections together and then you'd piece sort of a finishing strip. I'm not describing it well. You'd have to buy the book if you want to do it. It does mean you would be able to do a large size quilt in a home machine much more easily. I'm just not entirely sure I would want to then go back and do the finishing strips and kind of put it all together at the end. I suppose it's one of those things that once you've done it two, three times, it gets faster and then it's uh, more easily um, able to do. I probably would be willing to give it a shot once and see what I would, um, whether I like it or not. Uh, She pointed out several of the quilts that she's done for various books and such that were done like that. And she did say it was faster. Again, you'd have to probably do it a couple times to get it to that point of being faster. Um, But she was, again, a very enjoyable lecture. Um, Whether or not I'm sold on the uh, particular technique that she was talking about, I really enjoyed the time that I spent in that that lecture. It was only an hour, so it wasn't a a long one. But she was, again, very polished, very well organized, um, amusing, entertaining. I enjoyed her. Um, 
so, and I liked her quilts, you know, it was a little bit of eye candy to look at. So um, that was definitely worthwhile. And again, I would recommend if you ever have an opportunity to take a class with her, to go hear her speak, definitely do it. She was thoroughly enjoyable. Oh, she does have, she said she has a short video on her website. So I will post a link to her website as well. So the fact that I couldn't explain this very well, not a big deal. Just watch her video. Okay, the next lecture that I attended, this was the day I attended three right in a row, um, was one I had never heard of this person before. I'd never heard of this technique uh, in this particular way before. And the main reason I took it, it's the lecture is entitled Freestyle Quilting Danish Standard. And I really took it because my mother-in-law is Danish and I decided I would do it in her honor, even though I had no idea what Freestyle Quilting Danish Standard was. And the, the person who gave the lecture, I am probably not going to pronounce her name correctly. It's Hanna Vellendorf. Hanna being spelled H-A-N-N-E. Vellendorf being spelled with a W. And she, as she explained at the beginning of the class, the reason she calls it Danish standard is because she's Danish and she gets to do that. So unfortunately, they, in order to see her presentation, they turned off all the lights in the room. And so I was writing in the dark. And that means my notes are really, really hard to read <laughs> in some cases. Let's see. But she, what she, her basic thing on the freestyle quilting is that you take your batting and your backing, you, you lay that down first. And she talked about she prefers a high loft, the puffier the better. So high loft batting, she specifically referenced Fairfield. And um, I can actually, I feel okay about describing this to you fairly uh, completely because although her website says she has a book out, apparently it's not in English. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, so I, there's no, I'm not really taking away any sales from her, I don't think. But that being said, even I'm going to describe it to you and you still may not be able to figure it out. In any case, you take, put down your backing and your batting, and then you choose a bunch of different fabric. And she said her rules are that you can't use the same fabric twice and you can't quilt it the same way twice. You can't use the same quilting pattern the same way twice. And she said, when people ask me why, I say, because I said so. So <laughs> that's just her rule. And what you do is you take your first piece of fabric and you cut it into some kind of random shape and you pin it down and then you quilt that first piece down. So you do whatever quilting pattern you're going to do on it and then you stitch all the way around the edge of it to really hold it down. Then you choose your second piece, you lay it up against that first piece and you cut it in whatever edge you're going to put it against of the first piece. You cut the edge of that second piece into the same shape and then you fold under about, you know, like an eighth of an inch or so. You just a little tiny fold and then you basically applique it down to the first piece. So um, you're going to make those two pieces butt up against each other, but you're actually appliquing that second piece over the edge of the first just a little bit. And she uses what she calls the art zigzag. Um, and what that means is it's just a zigzag that's not even. You just kind of screw around with it as you're going. You just kind of make it uneven and, and as she said, arty. Um, kind of make it look funky. And so you actually zigzag, so it's a visible applique stitch, down those two pieces together. And then you do the same thing over again. You quilt that second piece down with a different quilting pattern. And then you stitch all the way around the outside edge to make sure it really stays in place. And then you cut your third piece and you applique that down, et cetera, et cetera. Then... Um, you, so you cover your whole piece of fabric and 
uh, your whole piece of batting and backing, and then you trim it to whatever size you really want it to be. Um, and then from there, it gets very vague because then she made all sorts of product from this fabric. She basically created the fabric to then turn into bowls or um, various art forms in her garden. She had great photos. Uh, but once she gets it into whatever shape she does, she then actually lacquers it so that if you make a bowl and you lacquer it, then you can actually use it and wash it out, you know, gently, but you can still wash it out. It holds its shape. It makes it nice and shiny, etc. And the process, she said, for lacquering, um, the specific products she mentioned were Danish, um, but she said she could probably get, you know, similar ones. And somebody next to me said, oh, yeah, that's just that, that, that. And they said some other name, but I didn't write it down because, <laughs> you know, remember, I could not see my notebook to write things down. Uh, but I believe she used a decoupage first, did a coat of decoupage, let that dry, and then two or three coats of lacquer on top of that. So that was basically how she lacquered it. So I'm really jazzed by the concept. I don't know that I would then turn it into a bowl or whatever like that, but I was looking at just the um, basic free motion quilting or freestyle quilting technique that she had suggested, and I thought it would work perfectly with some of these ethnic fabrics that I've now bought that you don't really always know what to do with. Um, you know, they're great fabrics, but they don't really fit our kind of traditional patterns. And, you know, there's only so many rectangle square type quilts I can make that focus on big fabrics. They all start looking alike a little bit after a while to me. I've made a few and I need to do something different now. So that's, I may play around with that technique and I'll let you know how it goes. It was, it was really fun. Um, again, I, I will post a link to her website. She's got some photos up there. There's a video on YouTube that I think also shows the process. And this is one that I would have bought a book if she had one available, but there wasn't one there. And when I've looked on the web, I couldn't find one either. So um, that being said, if she ever comes out with one, I will probably buy it. I'm checking my notes to see if there's anything else I need to let you know about her. Nope. I think that was it on her. I really enjoyed her. Okay, then the last lecture I went to that day was by Mary Sorensen who is a well-known applique artist. And the name of the lecture was Buy Everything, A Practical Approach to Fabric Selection. You gotta go to a lecture that's called Buy Everything. <laughs> and she was a hoot. It was the perfect thing to have at the end of the day because by then I was getting a little tired. I'd had these great lectures, had learned a lot, but it was towards the end of the day. I was tired. I just needed to sit and laugh. And that's pretty much what I did. Uh, her lecture was about... Um, fabric and what you need to pay attention to in fabric. She talked about variety and contrast and color and value and texture um, in terms of flipping a page so I can double check. Um, texture of the print, uh, also intensity, uh, the density of the print, the scale of the print, conversational prints, contrast in the layout of the print, what direction it's heading in, all that kind of thing. And so, you know, each section that she'd go through, she would say, well, then basically that means you need to buy every color. Okay, now you need to buy every value of every color. You need to buy every intensity of every value of every color. You know, just kind of, she had that kind of rolling through. And it was just really, really fun. I didn't, she didn't really say anything I didn't, hadn't, or didn't already know. However, just by virtue of listening to it, it makes you reflect on your own stash. And I had looked at my stash in terms of color and value before. What I hadn't really thought about until I was listening to her 
um, last week was prints. I actually have very, very few small-scale prints in my stash, tend to go to medium and large. And that's, she said, most people have medium prints because that what that's what tends to catch your eye in the fabric store. Um, but obviously you need the small-scale scale prints to help balance things out. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking at my stash saying, all right, I'm going to need to kind of make a list so that when I am just sort of in a fabric store with no particular project in mind, I can say, oh, that's right, I really need small-scale prints and I need these colors and I can kind of pick it out that way. Um, however, after Houston, I won't be buying any more fabric for a little while, so I'll just have to put that little thought on hold. Okay, pausing and flipping through some more pages of notes. Hang on. Okay, found it. The last lecture that I went to was another luncheon, just like I'd been to a luncheon with Kay Facet. This one was with Ellie Sinkevich, who is the um, Baltimore album queen. And this lunch, I went to this, I do like Baltimore album quilts, and I'm you know, hoping to get better at applique. But the main reason I went to this is the title of the lecture was Ribbons, Roses, and Women's Rights, Baltimore Album Quilts, A Visible Face of Social Revolution. Okay, so I have a bit of a revolutionary in me, and I, that just sounded cool. I wanted to go hear about how Baltimore albums were connected with women's rights. It was educational. I will say um, she wasn't the most organized of speakers. It, it felt like she was trying to cram three lectures into one is really kind of what it felt like um, when I walked out of there. I learned a lot. There was an awful lot I didn't know about Baltimore album quilts. There was a lot about symbolism within Baltimore album quilts that I did not know. So it definitely, I'm not upset. I'm not feeling bad that I had gone to this lecture. I found it really interesting and there was a lot that I um, took away from it. I was just, I guess I was kind of hoping that I could follow her chain of thought in a couple of places a little bit more closely. Um, she tended to jump around a little bit. Um, but that being said, she, you know, again, very charming person, entertaining. You know, it was fun in that. If you're if you're willing to kind of do a little bit of the suspension of expectation, um, then it's not at all a problem. I didn't necessarily buy her full theory all out. She Her theory was that um, Baltimore album quilts that were produced during that time. And it was a fairly short period of time that Baltimore album quilts actually were made, you know, truly real Baltimore album quilts in Baltimore were only made, I think she said from 1844 to 1856 are the dates I have written down. So it was a very short period of time. And she talked about, you know, what was going on in government and what was going on in terms of fraternal organizations and the Freemasons um, and the Oddfellows and all that, and where the symbolism came out in the quilts. And I certainly could agree that some of those um, Baltimore album quilt makers probably did quite intentionally include a lot of those symbols in their quilts. But I can't quite get over the thought that a lot of other folks might have just seen those initial quilts and said, oh, that's a pretty flower and included it in their quilt without necessarily even knowing that it had this other greater meaning to it. So, you know, as, as I said to um, Kate, who was with me at that lecture sometimes a cigar really is just a cigar but <laughs> that being said um i can certainly agree or i can see she was very very well researched and so yes i could believe that a lot of these quilts did have that symbolism in it that wasn't what i was questioning what i was questioning is whether every quilt that had that image was necessarily had that intention but that's i mean you, you never know because that's reading into the mind of the person who made the quilt who has now been gone for 100 years or more. So, you, you know, that's something we'll never know. 
But I did learn an awful lot about what a lot of those symbols were. And um, I am strongly considering, again, once I've gotten over a few months of, you know, letting my Houston spending kind of <laughs> fade into the distance, I might buy that, um, the book that she has out about Baltimore albums. It, she really was very, very interesting. Um, she is definitely a scholar, and I really appreciated that side of it. So again, I would say if you have an opportunity to hear her speak, um, don't skip it. Definitely do. Just uh, be prepared for the fact that it may not be the most um, organized of lectures you've ever heard, but it will be full of really good information. That's that's just my um, my little review there. So basically, that was pretty much all the lectures I attended and what I learned from each one of them. And I did learn from every one of them. I did not have the experience of going to any lectures that I just got nothing out of. Um, unfortunately, my friend Kate did. She had one lecture, and I'm not going to say who it was. And I'm not even sure I could find it now, um, who it was. But the lecturer showed up 20 minutes late and never really apologized and then sounded like she was just talking off the top of her head with no notes. And Kate walked away a bit frustrated because she didn't feel like the person had really prepared for this experience, and therefore Kate didn't get a whole lot out of it. Um, and fortunately, that was only an hour lecture, you know, and it's too bad if you get into a class and the class isn't what you hoped it would be. Uh, but in any case, I had a great experience across the board with all of the people that I went to, so I'm very pleased to be able to say that. So if you ever have an opportunity to hear Kay Facet or Halla Shadlin or Marty Michelle or Mary Sorensen or Hanne Vellendorf or Elisa Kevich, I would definitely recommend that you do. I really enjoyed every one of them and learned quite a bit and eventually will transcribe my notes into my computer so I have them forever. Okay, that's about all of my conversation about my experience at um, Houston. In the next couple of episodes, I will be presenting the interviews that I got while I was in Houston. I'm not going to say much more about those now. I've already told you a little bit about what they were in the last episode. So um, at this point, I guess, if you have any questions about Houston or about um, anything that I've talked about here, feel free to send me a comment and I will try to respond in future episodes. So now let's get on to listener comments. Okay, I'm going to be uh, responding to some of the comments and emails that I've gotten over the last week, and I'm hoping I'm doing this in order of which episode they were <laughs> posting to. Um, normally, I transfer my comments into my actual notes for the episode. But again, since I'm trying to do this on the fly, I've just basically got a bunch of emails open on my computer right now so that I can respond to them. Uh, first of all, Nancy left a comment on episode 27 in which we document our quilts. And I just had to share this one because it's too funny. She says, apropos of nothing in this podcast, but on my mind, nonetheless, somehow, some way, my golden learned that the golden who shares your home is referred to as a doofus. Wow, did I have a time calming him down. He believes that he is part of a very noble, distinguished breed. And even though he jumps and turns in circles, should anyone mention go for a ride or go for a walk? And even though he tries futilely to be a 60 pound lap dog, and even though he presents his belly to be rubbed, should anyone just give him a little pat? He is assured that he and his golden brothers and sisters are the grandest of all. And Nancy, that gave me a good chuckle. And especially because my doofus golden, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, has now had his second run in with a skunk. It was actually several weeks ago. And dang it, if he doesn't still smell like skunk. And 
part of that's because I've been out of town so much and I haven't been able to give him his second and third baths with his hydrogen peroxide shampoo, which I need to do. Uh, but in any case, um, my golden sends your golden uh, very warm wishes and to any other goldens that are out there. So thank you, Nancy. And next is... Vivian commented on episode 27 in which we document our quilts. She says, To encourage yourself to label your quilts, consider a label another opportunity to add a design element to your quilt. When I make my quilts, I think about how and where I want to put my label and try to incorporate it into the piecing of the back of the quilt. And it could also be done from the front if your quilt design allows. Extra or orphan blocks and pieced backs lend themselves well to this. Case in point, I have two quilts, both finished earlier this year, that are still waiting for labels because I have to sew them on. All the quilts where the label space was pieced into the back had their information written in as soon as the quilting was finished. That is a fantastic idea, Vivian, and I've got um, some quilts coming up that I'm going to try to do that with. And Vivian also says, blog as documentation. If you have a blog, you can actually have your blog entries printed out in a book form, much like I suggested in going the digital scrapbook route. Um, Google publish your blog as a book, and you will find any number of sites that help you do this. Note that this is usually something you will have to pay to have done. So that's another great point, Vivian. Thank you so much for bringing that one up. Next. Whoops. I clicked the wrong button. Next. Oh, and then Vivian emailed me. Um, and I'm not going to read the entire email because it was long. She had some great ideas in there. And she sent me pictures, which was always good. Let's see. She says, from the time I started learning about quilting in 2001, I heard primarily from Alex Anderson because Simply Quilts was my quilt elementary school, how important it was to document your quilts. Um, In addition, since I've always considered my quilt journey sort of an art independent study, I figured that while I worked on developing my quilting skills, if I wrote about my process I would develop a portfolio of my quilt work, which is an excellent way to look at it. Um, She also had, Vivian had also developed a template for herself to use in her documentation, just a a Word document, which is a great idea as well. It's to um, have just a form that every time you finish a quilt or even during the process, you sit and fill it out. So that's really good as well. Thank you very much, Vivian. You gave me a whole lot to think about. There were some great, great ideas in there. All right, the next comment is from Jay, also on episode 27, and she says she makes her labels in two ways. One is using the stitch letters on my sewing machine. Mostly these days I use Word and then print the label on fabric. I piece my back, so I always piece them into my back so they get quilted into the quilt. I document my quilts ad nauseum, except for the exact fabrics I use, because I usually don't buy fabric specifically for a project, and I just grab what colors I need out of the closet and cut away, or I'm cutting bits and pieces all year. Oh, she says, the problem with my documentation is that the information is on my website, in my blog, in my personal journal, and in a project file I have for each project. I don't know how to reconcile all of those places for information. Thank you, Jay. Um, Another person who pieces their labels into their back, so I'm going to have to really start paying attention to that one. And Beth Davis, my appraiser friend. If you remember, in that same episode 27, I referred a question to her because I didn't really know. And the question, I'm sorry, I didn't write down who had asked it. I believe her name started with a K, maybe Karen. Don't remember, sorry. Um, In any case, she had asked whether she should be adding labels to other people's quilts. And 
Um, I specifically said I will need to ask Beth about the antique quilt one. And Beth apparently listens to the podcast because she replied almost immediately um, when I had posted it. And she says, in my humble opinion, adding a label to an antique quilt should not change the value of that quilt. This is as long as you are not permanently changing the original quilt. Just adding a small pocket on the back for those who have a large amount of written history or adding a cotton label printed with the information. As with restoration techniques, the concern is to do nothing that can't be undone without further damage. So I caution you that while sewing the label, you need to mind that the fibers of an old quilt generally are more fragile, so take care not to cause any damage. Adding a label with the information of the quilt maker, her family history, is a wonderful act and a superb way to ensure that the history stays with the quilt. And she says, I love the new ideas you've proposed with using scrapbook techniques and blogs. Remember that much of what quilt historians know about quilts actually came from listed inventories of the family's goods and women's diaries. You're just proposing 21st century versions of these. Um, And she goes on to say, your second question was, what is the difference between antique and vintage quilts? Generally, what is vintage is a different era, 25 years old plus, and antique is 100 years plus. So this is a moving target. Generally, 20th century quilts up to the 1980s is vintage, as we could possibly still remake quilts made after the 1980s, and quilts from the 18th century is antique. Hope this helps. Thank you, Beth. It really, really does. And hope that helps whoever sent that first question. Sorry that I don't remember who it was. Okay, Eileen uh, commented on episode 27, Um, in which we document our quilts, that they have a large community of Amish in South Maryland, and they mostly use muslin as backings and sign their initials and date right on the back. Simple is what they always strive for. And Eileen goes on to say, I like writing my labels as I think that's more personal. She makes a great number of charity quilts and often just puts her first name and date, and quilts of valor get more than that, however. So thank you very much, Eileen. Um, That's also helpful information. Tammy left a comment about episode 17, (laughs) sorry, going back in time a little bit, in which I save a quilt from almost certain destruction. And the reason I'm um, commenting on this one is she actually is referring to the square and a square technique. If you remember, that quilt was made using Jody Barrow's square and a square technique, and my personal journey was definitely still out on the technique. But Tammy says that she took a class from Jody Barrow's at her guild, and... um, at the end of the day, we had a sampler top done. She says, my thing is doing photo quilts. When I look at quilts, patterns, and books, I'm always looking at them with an eye as to how they could work for a photo quilt. So after I tried square and a square, I knew I wanted to try it. And she says, I've never finished a top so fast. And she said, I will email you a photo. Tammy, so far, I don't think you've done that yet. So get on the stick. I want to see the picture. Uh, But she does say it was fast and easy. She's going to do the square and a square again this year, only with a different option. So I really do think, you know, like I said, when I did the technique, it may have just been the particular way we were doing the technique. And if I was doing just a straight out quilt with um, a bunch of those options, it may work better for me. I'm not giving up on it yet. I might come back and, and do it again. So thank you, Tammy, for your words of encouragement. And remember, send me the picture you promised. That's just teasing me. Okay, back to episode 27 in which we document our quilts. Lauren posted, and I follow Lauren's blog. It's a great one. Um, And she says that episode encouraged her to get out a portfolio that she had started when she got seriously into quilting. And it had been neglected for a while, but it offers features she liked. And 
she made a quilt for a wedding gift. And, uh, oh, this is in reference to the care information that I put on the back of one of my quilts for a wedding gift. She made a muslin bag for the quilt that she gave as a wedding gift, and she made it a, a very nice fancy bag. And then she did also put a care label on the muslin bag itself. Um, so that was also useful information. It's good if you give a quilt as a gift to make sure you also include care information if the person is not a uh, quilter themselves. And Nani left a comment um, on my last episode, episode 28, part one, in which we went to Houston. And she says, my grandson likes dancing to your intro music when I play it on the computer. And I have to say, I do a little jig every time I listen to it, too. (laughs) So thank you. Your grandson and I are dancing together. So those are all the comments from um, the episodes, actually. I think I just covered all of them. So the next episode I am hoping to post um, Friday or Saturday, and it will be the first of the interviews. So look forward to that. It'll be cool stuff. Oh, uh, update on the Sandy front. I got my fabric folded. Woohoo! <laughs> I actually, uh, like I said, I bought not, I didn't actually buy a ton of fabric in Houston, um, but enough to do some damage. And I bought two different, uh, I bought African fabrics from two different vendors and they look very, very different. They're definitely um, different styles of fabric. I bought some great art fabric and then I bought some fabric from a new designer uh, and it wasn't, she has it printed, it wasn't through a fabric company name that I recognize. She said she had just started getting her fabric actually printed um, rather than hand dyeing it herself and it was really, really cool stuff. So I took some pictures and I will hopefully get, be getting those posted probably on my blog so you can, um, you know, a little bit of show and tell. And uh, today I, I got them all folded, the method I use for folding my fabric so it all looks neat on my shelf. And I will be getting that all put away. And then I also pulled out, I had bought um, a couple of felted wool kits and then a bunch of patterns. I'm a big felted wool fan. I've done a couple of them in the past and I really want to do more in the future. They're great travel projects, fantastic travel projects. So I'm trying to get some sort of kits made where I've got everything cut out and ready to go so I can just grab it and go when I go on a road trip. Um, And so I pulled out one tonight and started uh, working on that a little bit so that I can start cutting the pieces out and, and getting it put together to the point where I could start stitching. But mostly what I need to do is get back to one of my UFOs and do some quilting on it and I did buy two new AccuFeed feet for my Janome. I have a Janome 6600. I've talked to you before on past episodes about some new feet. And this was for the AccuFeed. I bought myself the quarter inch foot and I got an open toe foot. So I think I'm completely ready now to do a lot more quilting using my AccuFeed, which is, um, for those of you who aren't Janome folks, the AccuFeed is basically a souped up uh, walking foot system. It's built right into the uh, machine itself and it works really really well i love that AccuFeed system so that's a rundown on my purchases sort of probably more than that but that's all i'm going to tell you about anyway take time out of this episode uh, so on the quilting front i'm hoping on by the time i post my next episode which will actually become episode 29 i will have more to report in the sandy update world so that's it for this episode um, hope you enjoyed being in houston with me and living vicariously. And let me know about your own quilt conference experiences. Tell me about other ones around the country, because as I said before, I'm now at a point in my life where I might be able to go to more of these, not the really far away ones, because then I've got airplane costs on top of it, but anything I can drive to particularly, I'm looking forward to. So if you've been to any of the other big quilt shows, 
um, tell us about them. Post it in the comments. Let us know. Give us your review. And, you know, if you've been to several and you really only had to be at one, you know, let us know which one you like the best, that kind of stuff. Share the wealth, as I always say. Let us know what you think because we all learn from each other. So that's it for this episode. And until next time, a couple days from now, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. 